Yeah, we don't want to do anything to scare your children. That's the last thing we want to do. We don't want to scare anybody. I'm Arjan. And I'm Rory. But I won't be speaking today because this is the ladies' episode. <laughs> <laughs> I mean,、uh... today, today we're amplifying female voices. We're proving that we're not. And specifically, dirt, but... female voices whose names begin with A.、Ah, exactly. exactly. That you're ne- working your way down next, the alphabet. Next week will be B. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you have you have guessed right. Uh, no, joined this、Beck. week by two very special guests,、uh, Annie Kelly and Ashling McRae. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing? Good, good. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. Yeah, would you like to、uh, tell our listeners, for anyone who might not know who you are, just a brief introduction? Sure.、Um, mine's much、uh, less impressive.、Uh, my name's Ashling <laughs> McRae, and、uh, I write stuff sometimes. That's it, really. Uh, so uh, yeah, my name's Annie Kelly,、um, and I am the UK correspondent for Kieran Anonymous and the writer and host of the Vaccine History podcast.、Um, and I also did a PhD about、uh, far right and conspiracy movements. I'm also joined by an extra guest,、um, which is my cat Hugo, who sat on my lap. So.、Oh. Apologies to whoever's going to have to edit out his purring. Why would you edit out purring? That's. I mean that. <laughs> that's. I, yeah. I mean bonus guest. That that that's actually that that will likely be the biggest draw of the episode. You know the the, the special、that's, guest. <laughs> no, that's completely true.、Uh, did you、uh, did you ever hear the like Run the Jewels album, which they they made it out of cat noises? They called it Meow the Jewels. No. <laughs> never heard. I did, I <laughs> it was. It, you never heard. You've not heard of it at no. all. It's brilliant. It's.、Uh, Because like the purring actually makes a really nice sort of bass line. Yeah. It's nice,、mm-hmm. of, it's nice sort of background. I'm putting this in another tab right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the outro music for this week, sort of. Yes. yes <laughs> But、uh, yeah, I mean,、um, sort of speaking of conspiracy theories and vaccines in particular, that's that's the topic of the of the podcast today. Is to is, is we are talking about. Um, anti-vaccine conspiracies, especially in the age of COVID, and a particular group of of online, and I'm putting this in massive scare quotes, intellectuals,、uh, who have played, <laughs> I would say, a rather prominent role in in spreading a lot of this stuff、um, to a pretty wide audience. Going sort of straight to our、uh, vaccine expert on the panel today,、um, how much would you say of the you know current anti-vax scares? You know, owe themselves to an anti-vax movement, which has been, let's say, happening for, for for quite some time already by now. Yeah, I mean, the first ever anti-vax movement was for the first ever vaccine, the smallpox、mm-hmm. vaccine.、Um, but largely, I tend to find that that movement was actually relatively sympathetic because although the smallpox vaccine was like a fantastic invention, which eventually led to 
you know, the total eradication of smallpox all over the world, it was not incredibly safe because back then they couldn't freeze dry the material. So they would do it from arm to arm. Mm -hmm. So it's in, you know, you would inject someone with cowpox and then get the scabs um, after they had formed and then use that to inject the next person, uh, which obviously ran the incredible risk of... uh, transferring a whole load of diseases uh, that you and also, also didn't intend to that's just a really grim procedure isn't it? Yeah. That, was, that was very grim yeah i mean weren't um, some of the initial uh, uh sort of attempts at vaccination like basically grinding up people's scabs and then snorting them in china yeah that's right in medieval china they were they really went really metal uh, yeah grinding up smallpox scabs and i think they also tried another experiment of um I think working to the same understanding that cowpox uh, gave you granted immunity to smallpox, Mm. they would take the lice off water buffalo, dry them, and then crush them into, yeah, a powder to snort. Um, (laughs) And it has to be snorted. (laughs) And also, so the smallpox vaccine, which uh, could, could go wrong, was then by the British government about five years after it had been invented was just mandated Mm-hmm. You were literally fined for if you didn't mm-hmm. um, if you didn't vaccinate your newborn child, and naturally because it's the British go- the British government in the 18th century, um, there were or the 19th century even um, there were just incredible inequalities in terms of who got fined and who yeah. didn't, and yeah. it nearly always seemed to be on poorer people mm-hmm. who um, bore the brunt of it and would even in some cases be imprisoned if they then couldn't pay. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so the anti-vax movement back then, I, I, I do tend to feel had a bit of a point. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, um, yeah, on several occasions when new kind of even more draconian laws were introduced, they would just, you know, riot. They would just burn cities to the ground. So, <laughs> <laughs> um so, uh, it, it, but it was it was wrapped up in all sorts of other things. It was wrapped up in, you know, the labor movement. Um, and so, you know, um yeah bosses and factories were uh, just mandating that you'd have to have the smallpox vaccine every year to work there right. um and so some of the really original uh, labor movement actually were sort of also anti-vax they were mm-hmm. you know uh saying no you know once we've been vaccinated once we don't need it again um and all of this kind of thing so it had a real class component mm-hmm. to it in the the early days um which i yeah, I think it is pretty distinct from the anti-vax movement that we see now. I would say that the anti-vax movement we have now seems to more be a resurgence of um, the anti-vax movement that appeared in the 90s around yeah. with Andrew Wakefield. Yeah, 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 exactly. And and we'll definitely come back to Andrew Wakefield. Um, but yeah, I mean... Um, just generally speaking, you know, I mean, when you're talking about the way that these public health issues... Um, and the way that governments tend to treat them uh, or deal with them, you know, the brunt of it falls very unevenly on the population, uh, depending on their status, on their on their privilege, and so on. Um, and you know, when you when you look at you know issues of you know today, uh, you know, the, the hesitancy uh, around vaccinations, uh, the the kind of communities that it oftentimes comes from as well. Like for example, in in the states, the fact that you know, uh, vaccine hesitancy is higher among the African-American community. I mean, it's not exactly a secret that like the American government have conducted 
really fucked up medical exper experiments on on uh, you know on black people basically throughout its history, um, including like the Tuskegee experiment where black men were uh, injected with syphilis, and then on top of that, when you look at like the neoliberalization of of medicine around the world of, of the vaccines in particular, um, you know which you know, in the early 20th century was very much in the public domain and it was very much uh, a matter of government research, uh, you know, which has now been entirely pretty much um, put into the into, into the free market and, and into the hands of giant pharmaceutical companies. And the kind of fuckeries that these pharmaceutical companies have done over the years, it's not illogical when you see like why people are hesitant and why people are suspicious and skeptical. Um, the issue is obviously when... Um, you know, these kinds of, I would say, quite understandable fears are then, uh, you know, taken advantage of by clear grifters. I think m pretty much everyone starts from a, you know, quite naturally from a position of, you know, trust in vaccines because it's there's something so intuitive about it. I mean, like, even when you go back to sort of like ancient cultures, they they sort of inherently understand this concept of immunity that people who have got viruses or got illnesses don't tend to get them again and then so like you know talk about what what annie was saying about like the you know they're eating the lice from buffalo and stuff like that a lot yeah. of that does go back to you know um sort of older cultures and you know like in the in the big vaccination drives they've got in a lot of south american countries yeah there really isn't that much hesitancy among like even, you know, like barely contacted Amazonian tribes and stuff, even though they've got like a lot of things to be suspicious about. Because uh, I think like the, yeah, there's something, yeah, kind of intuitive about vaccination. They, they, they get on board quite easily, I think most people with it. I would say that, um, you know, this, the, the hesitancy, it, it also kind of comes hand in hand with the search for alternative treatments. Because once again, due to the system of global patents with vaccines just the fact that there are still so many people around the world who just don't have access to it you know so it's yeah. not you know unreasonable to think why people would be looking for cheaper alternatives which are more readily available yeah i mean for example i think with ivermectin the uh you know mm -hmm. the, the horse paste um yeah. i believe a lot of people um in uh various global south countries were already taking it because it's an anti-parasitic and so it's something yeah. you take yeah. for um yeah for illnesses like river blindness and stuff, which, it, you know, mm -hmm. people are already yeah, kind yeah. of taking that medication. And so yeah. because there was at first, like, at least some preliminary evidence to like, okay, maybe this does something. Um, it was quite mm -hmm. easy for people to get on board because it was a medication they were already familiar with yeah. and that, that was already available exactly. to them. Also, the, the, the ivermectin case is interesting because even though, like, studies are showing, you know, it's it's clearly ineffective for COVID, like, most antiparasitic drugs do have some antiviral properties. So there is, you know, there's a base, a basis of truth uh, there somewhere. It's just you'd have to take it at, you know, a volume that makes, you know, like that burns your retina and makes you like shit blood to actually make it have any difference against <laughs> COVID. Yeah, I mean, the, the ironic thing is that um, vaccines are, I'm pretty sure they're known to be like the one of the least profitable medications you can actually make because you you know you make it once you take you take it once mm -hmm. yeah. maybe like one booster shot or something mm -hmm. and um and then mm -hmm. you know you don't need it again so you yeah. know it's less profitable than say a medication that you have to take repeatedly um 
so yeah you always i think have mm-hmm. to be a little bit suspicious if someone's like yeah, don't take definitely. this thing because big farmers are profiting from it uh, you should take this other thing which is definitely not made by big farmer which is made by uh <laughs> li- li- little little elves little medicine elves L- little farmer yeah. <laughs> small- uh, mom and pop store farmer Ooh, small there farmer was, <laughs> there was a big scandal in brazil recently uh, like a big cause there's, there's a massive private healthcare industry and this big firm called i think it was called prevent senior they were they were selling these covid kits to like these brazilian boomers which had like hydro- hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin and all of this stuff yeah in. it's called uh, and they were making so much money for it it's called prevent senior because it prevents you from becoming a senior yeah, prevents- <laughs> 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 yeah so the yeah the potential for profiting from all these you know, snake oil medications is vastly, vastly superior to, to vaccinations. The only real profit they're making from from vaccines is the intellectual property. Yeah, they're, they're pretty much selling them at cost throughout mm-hmm. the West. Companies like Pfizer. I think there is something very interesting going on with ivermectin. And I would say it speaks a little bit to what you were talking about, uh, Rory, with this kind of sense of... Um, the sense we have of immunity. Um, and it makes me think of, yeah, there was this rival to germ theory back in the day called terrain theory, um, which was a understanding that, yes, bacteria existed everywhere, um, but it could only harm you or would only be harmful to your body if your body had been kind of constituted in such a way um, that it's sort of essentially allowed the terrain to kind of become sick, the terrain of your body, I should Mm -hmm. say, to become sick. Um, (laughs) And one thing I find really interesting about that is like, it's not entirely wrong. Do you know, like it's it's been discredited um, because we, yeah, we do know that germ theory is real now. Mm -hmm. Um, But we, but it's not entirely the kind of sense, I suppose, that, you know, um, your immune system is kind of um, based on lots of factors about you and um, you can tinker with it ever so slightly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's not entirely wrong. Sure. But one thing I've noticed in lots of anti-vax groups is actually as they sort of continue to research and continue to kind of um, spin, I suppose, this kind of story to themselves, quite often they'll stumble across terrain theory and say that, in fact, this is, you know, this is the real suppressed knowledge and has been all along. And ivermectin then becomes a way for them to, yeah, essentially kind of flush out what they believe to be the kind of bad bacteria in their system mm. and kind of create this sort of super immune, stable body, which simply cannot get sick. So it kind of, ivermectin was first floated as a treatment for covid but it's actually become something more in lots of anti-vax circles, which is something which was not only, you know, a treatment after the fact, but something that you can use essentially to kind of create this sort of perfect, perfectly healthy, perfectly stable body, which will not get COVID and in fact not get sick at all. It plays into a lot of, uh, you know, the aspects of consumer capitalism because there are so many products, you know, claiming to alter you know the bacteria in your gut or the you know the sort of flora and fauna it's things which are impossible to prove and don't really have any 
it's not that they're they're discredited it's just they can't have any empirical basis because they're so sort of vague and you know new age and so individualist yeah they're so based on every single individual's body which will just like naturally be different exactly yeah so it's it's a perfect it's a perfect little scheme to um to just make money selling like yakult or whatever to people Um, and I mean, like looking at somewhere like India, for example, um, you know, where obviously, especially this year, it, you know, the numbers just went completely through the roof. And India has a uh, notoriously bad public health service. Uh, I mean, it spends like less than 1% of its GDP uh, on public health, um, create some of the best doctors in the world, and they all pretty much go abroad, <laughs> or they work, yeah. you know, or they all or they work, uh, you know, entirely in the um, in the private health sector um and even the few that like you know the the, the few good doctors that work in, in public health i mean it's they can't really do much because there's no fucking funding so um so yeah. because the situation is so bad uh, and in a place like india where you know education and literacy are very low in in many parts of the country um the majority of the country uh, in fact um you know um and during the time of modi's india you know when you have this resurgent, uh, you know, Hindutva, far-right nationalism. Um, like, it's really become this breeding ground for all sorts of crazy superstitious shit uh, when it comes to, you know, what what can actually cure COVID and what can, what can prevent it. Um, and all sorts of rituals, all sorts of quack treatments. I mean, like, India's anyway um, always been like fertile ground for grifter gurus right i mean like yeah. it's uh... from what i from what i hear the uh, the whatsapp aunties in india are just on <laughs> yeah. another level yeah pretty much and uh <laughs> and um so yeah i mean uh, like so many you know ordinary people especially um have fallen victim to these kinds of scams and ended up either dead or with massively adverse uh, health consequences as a result of this stuff. Um, but at the same time, again, I think it's it's easy to understand where this is coming from, um, you know, in terms of the desperation that I think a lot of people feel when they're, when they're up against something like this, you know, which is a, a completely unprecedented event. Like none of us in our lifetimes yeah. have, have experienced something like COVID. Um, and especially like if you're in the global south um, and you just don't have access to both the information uh, or, you know, the, the, the appropriate medical um, facilities and treatments, then, yeah, you are going to try to cling onto whatever kind of makes sense or whatever you can. As, as has been mentioned already, uh, a lot of similarities can be seen, I think, between the, the type of vaccine scares that we're seeing especially in the west today um and uh, the mmr vaccine scare which happened in the late 90s um as a result of this paper that was co-authored by no longer doctor lost his medical license (laughs) but (laughs) total grifter and hack uh andrew wakefield um yeah, I mean, how, how much do you guys know about Andrew Wakefield and, and about all of that stuff? Uh, I'm fairly familiar. Um, there was a mm-hmm. pretty thorough... Um, I know that uh, that uh, YouTube is mainly for, you know, those um, algorithmic videos of, like, Spider-Man and Elsa mm-hmm. and for watching people, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, crush things. 
um, of, 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 of various <laughs> sizes with, with steamrollers and stuff. Um, there was a very good uh, video by um, H Bomber Guy, uh, maybe like yeah, a year yeah, ago, yeah, yeah. Um, that kind of goes mm-hmm. into detail, um, which I did yeah, watch yeah. about the whole kind of saga from beginning to end. Because uh, yeah, I think it's it's it is a fascinating story. I mean, it, it it's absolutely nuts when you think about it, and and how recent all of that was. Essentially, for anyone who might not know, I mean, there was this paper published in 1998, co-authored by well, the the lead author was Andrew Wakefield, and it had a sample size of 12 children, and it was looking at a potential link between the MMR vaccine uh, and a bowel syndrome, and potential autism. Um, I mean, which are in itself very disparate things uh, and kind of drawing a causation there is is anyway quite bizarre but it didn't it didn't claim any sort of causation it didn't try and explain that at all yeah it was um it was that, that, i think that is quite key it was only afterwards in in press conferences that uh, andrew wakefield started to push this idea very heavily yeah my understanding is there is actually like roughly speaking there have been identified like some kind of correlation um between those two things but there are lots of like, to me, there are a lot of more obvious explanations, like often, you know, people who are on the autistic spectrum have, you know, very restrictive diets or, you know, certain mm-hmm. like uh, practices yeah. and rituals around food. There are a lot of like much more obvious things than, you know, a vaccine which has nothing to do with your bowels or your brain uh, did it. Yeah. Because of 12 kids. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and and the way that this study was conducted was basically through the self-reporting of the parents, uh, you know, them sure. saying when they supposedly first um, noticed the symptoms of autism in their children. And once again, since the first signs of autism uh, oftentimes do coincide with the time when kids are, yeah. are first administered the MMR vaccine, it's not that illogical for parents to maybe draw that link if that's the case um now if that was even the case then that would be one thing it it all kind of um came out afterwards with a very detailed investigation by brian deer that, that i mean a lot of the the results were made up just just straight up just fabricated by <laughs> wakefield yeah. uh, anyway yeah. um so i mean it's not even like the self-reporting a lot of it was was accurate there and of course um like you were saying you know not only was like right after this paper was published, Wakefield held a press conference and then really, really pushed this narrative that the MMR vaccine, it's not certain, but there does appear to be, you know, some sort of link. And uh, and it would be much safer if people uh, took the vaccine separately, took a measles, mumps and a rubella uh, vaccine separately. And... What do you know? At the same time, he has filed for a patent for <laughs> for a measles vaccine, <laughs> and then, of course, it turns out that he had actually been hired by um, a lawyer or a group of lawyers who basically thought that they could make a huge amount of money by uh, filing a class action lawsuit against this new vaccine, against this new combined MMR vaccine. Um, and they thought that to, in order to do that, they need to basically create the study. Um, and they essentially fabricated the results. I mean, a lot of the, the co-authors of the papers, you know, they weren't ever brought together. They were kind of all consulted separately yeah. by Wakefield. Um, yeah. You know, one of them asked to have his name removed afterwards. And even beyond all of that as well, I mean, just just widespread uh, 
you know, uh, neglect of medical ethics when it comes to, you know, like, uh, c- like getting consent for some of the procedures. Most famously, Andrew Wakefield, uh, according to himself, uh, asked at the birthday party of his children, <laughs> yeah, wow. asked his asked his kids' friends who are all children. <laughs> he offered them money for their blood. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> offered them five pounds <laughs> for their just five quid for their blood, <laughs> for their blood oh to be used <laughs> in this uh, in this experiment and um that is extremely sus <laughs> i mean the guy just... comes up to you at a party and asks Ask if you want five quid for some blood, and he's he's, he's offering this to <laughs> no no question. Tell us what you're doing. He's he's offering this to actual <laughs> literal children. <laughs> and the thing is, like, he still to this day uh, justifies this. I mean, he says that the only thing that was really me- missing there was approval from a hospital's ethics committee. <laughs> That's quite a big thing. I mean, that's quite a big thing to be missing. Yeah, I mean, in fairness to Andrew Wakefield, he is just—he was just working in the in the footsteps of all of these, um, like seventeen and eighteenth century medical pioneers. Which was—I mean, that was exactly the kind of shit they do. You know, you you get so used to just sort of reading about this, you know, amazing advance in medical technology, and it nearly always starts with some guy somewhere, some country doctor, Mm -hmm. just being like, "Oh, I wasn't really sure if this would work." so I just like found the local orphan and yeah, yeah. just experimented on them yeah. just to just to see pretty much um, so yeah so maybe I think Andrew Wakefield is being misunderstood here um, and actually was yeah was just yeah following in, in the footprints of all of these uh, medical uh, giants before him he's a true political tr- correctness exactly before, yeah before pc culture uh-huh. said that you can't just grab a local orphan and pay them five pounds for their for their blood this this is what the left want to take away from us um, <laughs> <laughs> after the investigation by brian deer and then the the truth about the whole studies came out and about the massive medical malpractice that went on needless to say wakefield did lose his license uh and then he he went to the states where he ended up becoming a superstar for the modern anti-vax movement um heavily pushed by quite big name celebrities as well like jim carrey one mr Robert De Niro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and Jim Carrey, of it's, course, and, and Jenny It's Jenny always McCarthy. the worst one to go to the US. Like, it's Piers Morgan, yeah. <laughs> Andrew Wakefield, James Corden. James Corden. James Corden. <laughs> We're not sending our best folks. <laughs> Christopher Hitchens, exactly. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I think an- another, another factor in Wakefield's sort of rise to fame is you know, almost immediately he was a, like, celebrity in places like The Sun. Mm. Do you know, they, they kind yeah. of elevated him to that status immediately. And yeah. I believe when he got struck off, you know, they did a, a whole thing about how, um, you know, he he was being silenced for telling the truth. And they had a, a, a doctor who wrote, would write, write, like, uh, medical columns for them who was famously a big supporter of Wakefield as well. Right. Um, so there was like this, yeah, it's kind of actually mad going back and just seeing how much medical misinformation, uh, not just about autism and MMR, but AIDS as well, yeah. um, 
has just been published in the sun. <laughs> AIDS denialism was so rampant. It's weird looking back at it. Even yeah. like I, I was reading about how um, yeah, Andrew... the, the Sun was publishing stuff like yeah. saying it was a hoax that you could get AIDS if you were only having yeah. like yeah. straight sex and things like yeah, that. Yeah. It was and just the... mad. I was reading about Andrew Neil was a big um, yeah 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 he he strongly believed that yeah straight straight people couldn't get uh, AIDS. Anyway, there's loads of really prominent media figures who are still around today. It's bizarre I mean, looking back. Th- this stuff has like like to this day real world consequences in that like in the UK yeah. you you still can't give blood if you're in a gay relationship yeah which is just fucking insane especially considering that, is, the, yeah. that the vast majority of people with hiv are straight first of all and secondly i mean if you're like nowadays the hiv treatment is so advanced that basically if you're on effective medication you just can't pass it on like um so it's like these superstitions kind of end up having really long-lasting impacts um and in the case of the MMR vaccine, something that um, H. Bomber guy, in fact, talks about in his video, which is which is pretty interesting, it's sort of b- looking between then and now, if we look at the uh, public readiness, willingness to, to take the vaccine, the UK has had one of the highest in, in the world, um, yeah. uh, especially compared to, let's say, the States or even in many European countries. Um, and he attributes that at least to the fact that there's this this bullshit MMR vaccine scare already happened, and therefore the the the, the general public, and it, it happened so recently, really, when you when you when you think about it, um, that that it is still sort of in the minds of the general public that this is actually what happened, and um, that when when it comes to vaccines, you know, like these these kinds of scares can very much be bullshit. Uh, which, yeah, in in that case, it, it very much was. And it's also the case when it comes to COVID vaccine. The UK being the most compliant and acquiescent uh, body politic has upsides. Obviously, there are significant <laughs> downsides in the, obviously, the, the fact that, you know, if a newspaper says that allotment granddad is actually, you know, a terrorist supporter or whatever, they'll believe him. But you know, on the other <laughs> hand, if you know, if you tell people to take a vaccine, generally speaking, everyone will do it. It's not as much of a problem as, say, in France or you know other other European countries where there is this this culture of suspicion towards central authority. Yeah. Yeah, I think there is. Yeah, I think I definitely agree with that double-edged sword thing because I think one thing I observed, kind of following the anti-vax movement here in the UK and uh, interviewing people and stuff, was how many you know would say of course i really like the nhs or Mm -hmm. um you know they they all still love the nhs which Mm -hmm. seems weird yeah and it sort of occurred to me really that part of the reason that the anti-vax movement is so small i think here in the uk is because people really really do love the nhs but (laughs) that comes with a downside which is almost that they don't actually really see it as a political organ or a political institution in any way which is yeah as you say very good news for when we want to get lots of people to you to take the vaccine Mm -hmm. but it's not such good news when you're trying to when you're trying to sort of, you know, say this is why the NHS isn't working or, you know, it's a political decision that the NHS works like this because many people simply don't understand the NHS in that way, Do you know. They they see it as a separate body to um, political power. Yeah. Um, 
uh, independent almost of politics, which then means that, um, yeah, which which then I think means why largely lots of Labour efforts to kind of brand itself as the party of the NHS have often failed because that's just simply not actually how most people see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think it's it's fascinating. The NHS, there's this contradiction in that it's it's one of the most you know centralised organs of, of the state. It, of any sort of institution in any country anywhere. I mean, it's just purely governed, you know, starting from, you know, central government power. I know there's sort of trusts and stuff. It's decentralised outwards in that sense. But um, but on the same sense, there's so many people that work for it. It's so humanised. Like, everyone knows a nurse. Everyone knows, like, many people who are employed mm. by the NHS. So it's, you know, it's this, it's this huge institution, but also people see their... Their friends and family who are the the building blocks of it. It's it's a weird contradiction in that sense. And looking across the Atlantic, I mean, um, obviously the anti-vax situation is uh, is is much worse there in the states. And um, one of the prime channels of the distribution of this misinformation has been a certain group of, like I said in massive scare quotes intellectuals who found a bit of a name for themselves a few years ago. And I know this is something that you've done a bit of work on yourself, haven't you, Ashling? Um, I mean, how, how would you describe the intellectual dark web? Oh, this feels a little bit like, because you, you don't hear as much about them now as you did, say, I don't know, exactly. two, two years ago. 2018, yeah. So this feels yeah. like a little bit of a flashback for me. But um, <laughs> they were, loosely speaking, I believe the term was coined by Barry Weiss. Wasn't it? Wasn't it Eric Weinstein who? Oh, it may it may it. have been actually. You yeah, may be right yeah. there, but yeah. uh, basically, it was a sort of loose group of supposed intellectuals whose main uh, sort of uh, interest was uh, left bashing, essentially, and being sort of mm-hmm. anti PC, yep. anti cancel culture, um, anti woke. Um, Whichever yeah. those terms was was in style at the time. Um, anti SJW. Anti SJW, exactly. Um, <laughs> and it included people as far as uh, you know, some actual sort of college professors to people like Dave Rubin, who might be the dumbest person alive. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely, um, absolutely, the stupidest man alive. Meathead. Just no- nothing, nothing behind the eyes, empty. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, but they kind of came to prominence um, as... And I, I think it's kind of understandable how they came to prominence in that they, they very much sold themselves. They had the aesthetics of, like, we are intellectual and we're telling you things and we're very daring. But they were also um, yeah, kind yeah. of publicly visible, right? So you didn't need mm-hmm. to go through... You know, you didn't need to be, um, like, at university or have, you know, like an academic login where you could get, you know, peer-reviewed mm-hmm. papers or whatever. You could just watch YouTube or listen to a podcast and you could... You could just yep. be listening to Joe Rogan. Yeah. <laughs> Basically. And it was just like, you could kind of convince yourself, well, I'm not... Uh, especially, like, someone like Joe Rogan, he doesn't sell himself as, like, I'm selling you this point of view. He sells himself mm. as like, hey, I'm just like a guy and I like to listen to people who I think are interesting. And, you know, maybe mm-hmm. exactly. I might have one guy one week who believes one thing and then another guy a couple of weeks later who believes the opposite thing. And it's all just like, you can't, uh, you uh, you know, it doesn't do any harm. It's just like a listen to different yeah. points of view. And of course, what that misses <laughs> is like yeah. the framing is... Yeah 
com- it, the framing kind of determines your thinking without you thinking about mm-hmm. it. You know, if you think you're listening to yeah. all these different points of view, but you're never actually listening to, say, a left point of view, um, mm-hmm. then you're not actually getting different points of view. And if you're hearing over and over again from people who claim to be very different, but they're all saying like, oh, the SJWs, blah, 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 then you are, you are, yeah. um, you're ingesting that, right? Um, yeah. And so I think these guys, they kind of sprung, I think, from, not necessarily uh, directly, but they're kind of a product, I would say, of new atheism in that. Yeah, exactly. Um, in yeah. that they were um, kind of people who, I think new, new atheism came out partly as a result of genuine things, like in, you know, in the US, they came out sort of in the George W. Bush era. So you had actual, you yeah. know, people who were trying to, like strike down gay marriage or get like evolution Mm -hmm. out of schools and this kind of thing. And so you had this, uh, and then also to a a less understandable extent, you also had Islamophobia that came out of, you know, a post 9-11 environment. Mm -hmm. And so you had this idea that, oh, it's religion that is causing the problems. Not all these complex, you know, social and economic and foreign policy factors, but religion. uh, And the result was a lot of people who kind of, posed as being very clever and in some cases might have a genuine background you know Richard Dawkins did have a genuine Mm -hmm. you know science background in which you know he achieved various things but then they were posing as intellectuals while the actual arguments they offered were just like ah religion silly ah you believe in a god in the sky ah did you, did you guys ever watch that film Religulous by Bill No. Moore? Oh my god. If if you if you're ever in a in a in a mood for like serious self-harm, just just watch it. It's <laughs> it's it's fucking it's about as terrible as you can imagine it would be. <laughs> anyway. The thing is now that the um the intellectual dark web aren't anti-religious; they're just anti-Islam, and that was, that yeah, was yeah, the yeah. natural. <laughs> that was the the natural endpoint of all. Yeah, the the new atheist movement. Because I mean, when you look at some of the figures in the the so-called intellectual dark web, you've got like Ben Shapiro and Jordan Peterson. <laughs> yeah, Jordan Peterson. Uh, well, Barry Weiss is is quite religious, I believe, and you've you got figures like Douglas Murray, who's like homies with Victor Orban. Yeah, you know, yeah. he wants to like turn hungry back into like a, a calvinist state <laughs> and it's uh it's, so naturally it, it, this whole movement morphed into just you know uh it's this obsessive hatred of islam as you know uh you know almost it became it became sort of othered as a religion and you know extremely racialized as well <laughs> of course of course yeah it certainly felt as if the new atheists um stance their kind of provocative stance was i think this tone of um centrism of moderation mm-hmm. of you know i'm surrounded by idiots on all sides so and it rationality with, you know we've got the i've got the bush administration and all of these kind of evangelical christians on one side of me and then i've got you know these um yeah, I've got Al Qaeda and you know the kind of Islamic terrorists on the other, and I can and I just from my grill. from my lofty centrist position, I can kind of determine that the problem with both of them is that they're they're stupid and irrational. Do you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. But obviously, once the Bush administration is out of power, and also it's just not incredibly compelling to just keep on saying, you know, no, the Earth was not created in seven days over and over again. They sort of need to kind of find another. Mm-hmm. Uh, another rival, another kind of 
uh, another kind of institution that they can say is, you know, um, is uh, is another idiot that they're surrounded by. And I think they largely they pick on universities and the supposed uh, radical leftism and um, yeah, cultural Marxism of of universities as their kind of counterbalance to their sort of moderate sensibilities. Well, this is it. I mean, you know, as, uh, you know, online atheism uh, was sort of running its natural course, um, Gamergate happened. And that basically provided an entire new tableau of, uh, you know, offences that these people could cling on to, basically, right? And uh, it just became an entire new uh, battleground for this culture war. And that that's what's most interesting to me, right? It's something that we've mentioned in the podcast before about how everything is culture war these days, right? And how, as a result of that, you know, even the vaccines have become culture war. Um, and, you know, previously we've talked about uh, living Marxism and uh, the um, legacy of living Marxism in the you know, current political discourse, you know, when you look at something like the Sewell report, uh, which claimed that uh, there is no institutional racism in the UK, <laughs> um, you know, which which basically reads like a spiked online article. And like when you realise that those people have essentially um, successfully, you know, done the long march through the institutions <laughs> and, and and really set the terms for debate. Um, and I think that these IW, IDW people, uh, you can very much see them on a similar sort of spectrum, you know. Um, it's very difficult to ever determine whether they believe what they're saying or not. Um, someone like Dave Rubin, you know, not only is he incredibly fucking stupid, but he's also like really clearly disingenuous. You know, and I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of the other members of this group also distance themselves from him because they realize that he's just, it's just not a good look. He's I mean, just this guy, thick as shit, this isn't guy it? is <laughs> so fucking stupid, honestly, <laughs> that like it, it's not not great for us to be associated with him. What's really notable about the intellectual dark web is that there are no economists, there are no uh, political <laughs> thinkers, there are no social scientists. The only, they're all the evolutionary who, psychologists. Yeah, which, uh, yeah, evolutionary psychology, first of all, is complete bollocks. Like, it, yeah. it's like, it's basically astrology that doesn't exist. <laughs> but, you know, like Jordan Peterson, he's, a, you know, a psychologist. And these are all very uh, individualized fields. You know, they they uh, analyze the subject, you know, on a, on a micro level. And there's an element of not being able to see the wood for the trees. You know, they, we're living in a post-political age and they represent the kind of politicization of individual grievances, which we see so much uh, every day, uh, you know, absent of any kind of ideology or you know, coherent political uh, idea about the world. Uh, you know, Jordan Peterson just sees like the annoying students on his campus who have pink hair and say they're genderqueer, and he and he he tries to he tries to frame this this massive worldview around it, and it doesn't 
it doesn't really make any sense. <laughs> but but what it does do is get a lot of clicks on YouTube. This is it. And this this sort of pretension of not being political, this pretension of being rational, you know, in the face of this yeah. lunacy from the hard left, right? Like that was that that that's very much like their their branding and their um their their selling point, you know, when they first uh, became a thing. Um and when you actually look at it, I mean, it's a bit like, you know, like what you were saying with Sam Harris, you know, like I've got these Islamist lunatics on one side and I've got these evangelical, um, you know, fundamentalists on the other. Uh, and look, what 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 madness. Uh, we need some rationality. Anyway, here's why torture should be legal. You know, <laughs> like, <laughs> so, <laughs> This is this is kind of the arguments that you'd get with these people, right? I mean, yeah. you've got like Jordan Peterson yeah. talking about these crazy pink-haired college students and how trans rights activists are basically the same as Mao. And anyway, this is why if you don't clean your room, the chaos dragon is going to eat you up. And like it doesn't, like none of it really kind of makes also, sense. <laughs> yeah. Also, they're not. They're not conservative. They're not reactionary. They're classical liberal. That's my favorite. <laughs> yeah. That's my favorite bit of rebranding. Because you know, there's nothing sexy about Christian conservatism or or reactionary politics. But if you can say, well, actually, if it was 1972, I would be really liberal and progressive. Yeah. What yeah. about that? Like, what, if we were living no, no, no. in a if time it, if, of... it, if it was 1872, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, classical we were... liberal. <laughs> They're going back to the Whigs. Yeah. Well, it's, it's 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 basically there's a kind of fetishization, I think, of of like nuance and moderation, where it makes you seem like you're a really independent thinker. Um, I mean, this yeah. is similar again, yeah. drawing a line with yeah. the, like the spiked people. Is I think like um, I don't want to get into any kind of um, you know niche uh, you know left ideology beef or whatever, but like. I think a lot of the appeal of Trotskyism, which you know they uh, a lot yeah. of spike people identified with, is you get to be like, well, I'm not. And I, by the way, I'm saying like I think Trotsky has some good ideas and stuff. I'm not. I'm not getting into like the subject yeah. matter here, but I think part of the appeal is the position is like, well, I'm not like the mainstream because I'm a communist, but I'm not like the other communists either. So I'm like, you you are always like positioning yourself like, oh, I'm not with like that. Group. I'm, I'm not actually, like the other girls. Yeah, exactly. It's, I, it's I'm not like other girls. Like, and so what you end up with is it's like indie communism. <laughs> so then when they, when a lot of those uh, like self-identified uh, Trotskyists. Oh, by the way, I have to say one of my favorite um, of those like uh, sort of uh, Trots who became like British media people story. I just, I, yeah, I love this yeah. anecdote so much. Yeah. There was a team on University Challenge, which included uh, David Aronovich, when he identified oh, as a Trotskyist. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> and as a protest against the system, they answered every uh, every question, no matter what it was, with like Che Guevara or Chairman Mao. No. So <laughs> fucking good, man. I love it so much. Um, and obviously all, all those people like 20 years later were fucking Blairites supporting the Iraq war. But, Massive neocons, yeah. like every single one of them. <laughs> yeah, so I think that's always like, and that's what the spi what spike people want to do is like, actually, I'm more of a communist than the communists. That's why I think all the conservative <laughs> positions are good. And so that's that with the intellectual dark web. Again, it's like it's not that the actual subject matter has any 
thought gone into it or any evidence or anything that's yeah. actually intellectual but if you put on this air of like actually i'm above i'm not the left or the right i'm my own thing and it, then it doesn't matter what you actually say you just like if you convince people that you're this independent thinker then they won't actually look at the content or what you're saying yeah you're not one of the sheeple you know uh yeah. and you, you are genuinely a, 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 a you know sovereign individual that's able to think for themselves um uh, but that's the thing. I mean, these people are just professional contrarians, right? And oftentimes that the, the professional part of that, they're being paid by the Koch brothers. <laughs> like just, just very, very <laughs> directly, uh, you know? Yeah. And, and I mean, once again, you know, when you look at the case of someone like Andrew Wakefield and, and when he was holding these press conferences and he's just saying barefaced lies, he knows that he's just saying bullshit and he's saying this stuff to a media which is willing to lap it up and uh, you know this is going to create a huge amount of outrage in the media cycle and it had like really really long-lasting consequences that we're still facing today uh but he was doing this just for his fucking paycheck and we know this um and it's a similar similar situation to these kinds of people and and the reason why you know we're, we're bringing up the idw in the in the in the um context of the vaccines is especially because of a number of people um you know, who have either died recently or faced severe, um, uh, you know, adverse health consequences because of uh, catching COVID, um, say, uh, you know, said that they got their their advice from listening to Brett Weinstein's podcast. And Brett Weinstein, you know, one of, one of the lesser known members of the IDW, at least at the beginning, not like your sort of Sam Harris or Jordan Peterson. Um, this guy, for anyone who doesn't know, he was a, an evolutionary biology professor at Evergreen College. And there was a, an anti-racism uh, protest uh, thing that was happening on the on, on campus, um, and uh, he refused to take part in it. There was this big public outcry about that, and he he resigned in this sort of big, yeah, in, in, in there, there, this big public resignation. Basically, he was given a massive paycheck by the university. Him and his wife, who were both faculty members there, um, and then he kind of ended up taking on this role of token progressive in that group you know like he him and his wife yeah, i think they, they they vote they both voted bernie i think um but at the same time like you know it's especially at the beginning like him and his his older brother eric weinstein who's like i mentioned is the guy that coined the the the, the term intellectual dark web uh is a, a mathematician and um he works for teal capital he's like a managing director for teal Ca for, for peter teal basically right and um you know like these guys like their whole mode of discussion is yeah like you were saying you know like in this abstract form stuck in the in, in this minutiae and they're constantly working with these kinds of thought experiments which oftentimes bear like no resemblance to reality whatsoever it's the absolute obsession with university politics which yeah i find really strange it definitely has sort of nazi undertones <laughs> but also <laughs> You know, it's they're, just they're just like so much more interested in university politics than I am. Yeah, like, even yeah. As a student. this is it. No, <laughs> people at university don't pay attention to these people. No, do you know? I first find out that my university had supposedly banned sombreros for a Mexican night through the Daily Mail. Like no one actually <laughs> at the university itself knew it, but we got a Daily Mail article written about it because of yeah, how how 
ridiculous and woke it was. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I do think maybe I'm reading into it a bit much, but is a it's a strange obsession with young girls and you know their their newfound independence <laughs> in the university, which has it has some worrying implications. Professors can't get away with what they used to these days. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> this yeah. is what this is what uh, PC culture has done. Yeah, <laughs> and, but and actually that's how um, that's how Barry Weiss came to prominence. She was at Columbia University, and she basically she got a load of um, Muslim professors fired for talking about Israel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just for you know, like very plainly talking about the occupation, actual occupation actual cancel culture. By the yeah, way. exactly. Yeah. And, then, and then the whole the rest of her career, Barry Weiss, all she wanted to do was get fired from the New York Times. That's <laughs> she, all she ever wanted. And then she but she didn't even get fired, didn't she? Like no, step no, down she, herself. Because, yeah, yeah, cause she couldn't get fired because she was getting too many clicks. Yeah. They would never, <laughs> like, people, you know, it's it's a, her, you know, articles about how the left are the real racist is a yeah. lot more juicy than, you know, Brett Stevens' columns about, you know, what if George Bush was the real liberal all along or whatever. <laughs> people actually, you know, want to read this salacious stuff. And then, yeah, Barry Weiss, she became sort of a prisoner of her own success. And she still became, like, I believe her substacks making, you know, a lot of money. She's still pretty yeah, successful. Yeah, yeah. But had she been fired from the New York Times, she would have been so big. She would have been everywhere as, you know, the cancelled, you know, female Christopher Hitchens. You know, too hot for the New York Times or whatever. <laughs> and she, she hates that so much that she, they, they could never fire her. Yeah. And and she's the one that very famously ran the massive profile on the intellectual dark web for yes. the New York Times, right? With those ridiculous pictures of all of them <laughs> posing, like in the bushes. <laughs> like, where the fuck did they take those pictures? I'm still wondering to this day. Like, <laughs> it just looks like they just like they were just driving down a highway or something, and just like stopped somewhere. It's like they're, they're in the woods. They're in the woods of intellectual <laughs> confusion and they're clearing the way like uh, fucking Dr. Livingston, like parting the bushes and making everything clear. Yeah. And, and, and that's that's also the funny thing, right? I mean, for these people who did very much um, uh, present themselves as these, you know, pro-science, uh, you know, pro-rational debate bros especially like your brett and eric weinstein you know like how they've ended up becoming really at the forefront of spreading a lot of this anti-vax stuff and um you know brett brett weinstein and his podcast with his wife which is called the dark horse podcast is really like has has a lot of listeners and because every week it seemed like the news was running this uh, story about uh like some guy who oh he just posted this video about how vaccines are, are are bullshit and now look he's dead and you know all the liberals would get like really like massive schadenfreude out of it and they were like ah oh, look 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 what we told you and it's just kind of disgusting honestly because it's like the, as far as i'm concerned these people are victims as well you know like they've been yeah you know absolutely um taken advantage of by some really shitty people in really shitty circumstances yeah. uh essentially but um a lot of these people did cite you know, the Dark Horse podcast and the Brett Weinstein and, um, and uh, you know, especially when this guy keeps on appearing on Joe Rogan, which is one of the most listened to podcasts in the world, if not the number one. Um, and Joe Rogan, like you were saying earlier, you know, he doesn't 
present himself as you know presenting any one ideology or he doesn't present himself as an intellectual either you know he is the dumb guy and he is like he is the stand-in for a lot of the audience of a lot of these guys you know like he is essentially this kind of blank slate which can just listen to this bullshit and say whoa (laughs) outside of a Outside of a political context, he he does have some very endearing qualities. It's it's easy to see why he became so popular. Because yeah, like you said, he's the the credulous dumb guy. Yeah, he's like a, he's like a a wide eyed child who's just like, discovering all these new things for the first time. He's like, yeah. Whoa! Oh my god, Jamie, can you pull that up for me? And it's, you know, it's it's fascinating to listen to, especially if you don't have. You know, an academic background and all these things are so, so alien to you. And I'm, yeah, I'm not going to lie, I have listened to a lot of Joe Rogan. Yeah, and I think, I think it's also you know, it's also because it's a mix of stuff, right? It's not all heady political stuff. Yeah, It'll be like exactly, one second, exactly. one second they'll be talking about like existentialism and the next they'll be like, did you yeah. know that like gorillas blow each other all the time? Like, you've got to bring that clip up. Like, Whoa, exactly. Jamie, can you pull that up for me? Oh no way. God. But yeah, in a political context, it's just extremely irresponsible because then it's, yeah, it's all right talking about, you know, like whether gorillas blow each other but then then when you get like the guy who wrote the bell curve coming on to you know talk about his you know pseudoscience explaining why you know black people are genetically inferior and then you just take that as face value Mm. and you don't interrogate it in a serious way then that's just shockingly irresponsible yeah yeah like i was saying you know i think brett weinstein has been on joe rogan's podcast i think four times by now um including this summer and um, Joe Rogan himself, when he uh, got COVID, I think it was about a month, month and a half ago, said that he would include uh, ivermectin as part of the treatment, yeah. um, as did uh, Milo Yiannopoulos. <laughs> and, uh, and then um, all those WhatsApp messages supposedly leaked of him dying. <laughs> <laughs> because, <laughs> because he's taking ivermectin like the whole thing was like such an obvious scam as well like with that like that guy is probably like the most obvious i mean if he if he does end up dying and no one believes it like that that'll probably like unfortunately be like the most on-brand thing to happen to him because like he is probably the most uh blatant bullshitter out of all of those sort of people that are like adjacent i guess most people wouldn't uh, you know, classifies him as uh, as intellectual darkware, but even you know, like he was no, adjacent. He, he was, he was, yeah, he was he adjacent. Been he was at a- one point, absolutely. There were a lot of guys who were like adjacent to mm-hmm. the intellectual darkware, yeah. who, yeah. for whatever yeah. reason, kind of yeah, sort of went down a different, a different, more explicitly, I suppose, hard right path. Like Stefan Molyneux was <laughs> has been interviewed on Joe Rogan like several times. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, I totally forgotten sort of, about him. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, right. It's because he's not on Twitter anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. He, um but he was, you know, Stefan Molyneux is like one of those people who just really kind of alters his alters what he's saying for his audience. So, you know, he would sometimes just occasionally just you know be quite explicitly white nationalist very explicitly like you know posting things about like the jewish question and things like that and then it's almost as if he'd get like a slap on the wrist from youtube or twitter or something and then would just kind of moderate himself back into being more in the intellectual dark web tone for a while 
Um, and was he always had that elasticity to him where he could just mm. he could go as as hard right as he'd like essentially. <laughs> yeah, but he he was he was very chummy essentially when he was in a bit more of a restrained era yeah he was very chummy with lots of them yeah, and yeah, yeah i was on joe rogan and yeah i was bantering with the weinsteins and all the rest of it like that yeah i'm just um, uh, and and milo and similarly with milo yiannopoulos as well yeah um before he kind of you got outed in some video where he was doing hitler salutes or something like that but before then he was just kind of flirting with this you know oh well i'm just fascinated in genetics and human human biodiversity and it's not even that i think it's true necessarily i think they should just have a chance to say their ideas and, <laughs> you know that kind presenting of thing. brave new ideas like race science <laughs> like yeah. like phrenology <laughs> yeah yeah exactly uh i'm just looking up this this old stefan molyneux tweet i mean like um i'm glad i had this one screenshot saved from like ages ago <laughs> i am sure that with enough rage spending and violence we can totally make japanese women as tall as danish men Please don't ask what I, what this is supposed to mean, <laughs> how this works. Like, Stefan Molyneux's brain, I think, works in a very, very unique way. I, I saw that um, Milo, um, he's he's become a, a a supposedly cured gay man now. Oh, yeah. He's trying to say that he's like post-gay. He's like, he's got some like... He's ex-gay, yeah. Yeah, ex-gay, yeah. Oh my God, and, yeah. yeah. So that, I'm sure that'll uh, go well for him. It's, uh, another another figure who's sort of weirdly uh, close to all this from a from a British point of view and um, has taken a big turn lately is Russell Brand. I don't know if you've seen. He's become sort of uh, not 100% explicitly anti-vax guy, but you know, he's... You know, he, he's very anti-lockdown and he sort of hints at a kind of, you know... There's cons- been, yeah, lots and lots of content about Big Pharma and, yeah, yeah I think his last one was, you know, oh, all of those fact-checking websites about, you know, anti-vax propaganda, right? they're yeah. all owned by Big Pharma and things like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, again, again, doing a bit of the sort, same sort of dance as the intellectual dark yeah. work free, web frequently did yeah. with uh, race science, the kind of... I'm not saying that it's true or not. Mm-hmm. I'm more just saying that it should be allowed to be said. Do you know? Yeah. Um, that I, I'm, I'm just, you know, I just don't want to see this information censored. Yeah. Uh, so well, speak, it relies on this. I believe his... it relies on this idea that like saying things is neutral. It kind of reminds me of, um, you know how in reality shows yeah. you always get one person who's like, I just speak my mind. I just say like whatever I feel like saying, but magically like all the things they say are just them being a massive asshole. Like this is not, this is not how reality works. If you just said literally everything that was in your head at any one time, or you just said things with no regards to truth, it would just be a total stream of consciousness of like, I see the chair, the chair is green. I I see the thing. I just remember this thing that happened last week. No, you make choices about what you say and what you don't say. And just like the reality TV person, somehow they always just say stuff that makes them an asshole. If you are choosing <laughs> to just say like, maybe there are differences between the races. Like you are actually making a choice <laughs> and you are like, there's a, there's a meaning behind that, right? Like, yeah. and this is something we recognize in general social life. Like if I, um, yeah. this is something like, for example, like 
um, with transphobes, right? They'll often be like, hey, yeah. uh, what? Uh, I'm just stating biology. Why is it wrong to say that a, a, a trans person is, is uh, you know, not the their biological sex? It's like, well, imagine that, that in any other scenario. Imagine if you met like an adopted person and you just kept like yeah. randomly saying like, oh, but you're, you're, they're not your biological parents. That's just like, that's just biology. <laughs> yeah. Or someone who had like a prosthetic leg and you're like, oh, your fake leg that isn't your biological leg. Like we recognize as just like social beings that yeah. that's not like a neutral fact that you're stating for the sake of stating exactly. a neutral yeah, fact. That it's an act of aggression. Right. So it's yeah. like you have to be a little bit more um not skeptical. You have to kind of have some common sense about like why people are saying stuff and why they're choosing to say the stuff that they want to say. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, by by choosing the framing, essentially you mm. are replicating a certain power structure, right? Uh, and and you're reinforcing and reproducing a certain power structure, and and that's that's oftentimes the case. Like it's like those guys with the Twitter bios, you know, that say like, you know, says says it as it is. If you don't like it, there's the door. You know, <laughs> like you know, <laughs> like, like, uh, you know, if you're not not for the easily offended, and it's like, I mean, like what other things? What are those massively controversial things that you're trying to say? Is it, you know, to do with... Uh... Facts don't care about your feelings. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but if you if if you say that, like, the Golan Heights belongs to... It doesn't belong to Israel, then Ben Shapiro goes in a massive pissy <laughs> fit. But still, facts don't care about your feelings. I mean, uh, yeah, I think one thing that's really interesting how the culture wars have moved to vaccines is that this was always the argument before, right? You know, facts don't care about your feelings. Like, you know, I'm I'm sorry if it if it upsets you, Snowflake, yeah. but I'm gonna I'm gonna say what I like. And there has been like this kind of subtle shift from saying things that are, yeah, as Ashling points out, kind of quite naked acts of aggression to vaccine misinformation mm -hmm. and yeah. uh, COVID misinformation, which is like, you know, which could just literally and as Arshan was saying actually has killed people mm. right yeah like this isn't this you know you you don't necessarily need to be making a structural argument anymore for you yeah. to say you know if you tell people that the vaccine is poison or there's at least good reason to believe the vaccine is poison mm. and there's good reason to believe mm. that masks don't work mm -hmm. um you are you know quite quite literally putting that person in physical mortal danger if they believe you do you know like it's yeah. it's but they're still yeah. adopting all of the same approach as they did for the old arguments yeah. the same approach of you know well i'm sorry if you don't like it but i happen to believe in the marketplace of ideas and all the rest yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah um, absolutely you know and i think that so they're starting to wrap things up. I think one of the most important questions facing us, especially as the left, is how do we reclaim some of these arguments? You know, because as we've mentioned throughout the podcast, the fundamentals and the basis for a lot of these conspiracy theories, I would say, are reasonable. You know, whether it comes to the longstanding, um, you know, abuses of governments on the bodies, especially of marginalized people, whether it comes to the profiteering and the, you know, uh, neglect of ethics by large pharmaceutical companies all around the world. Or like the, the, the big thing that annoys me is when liberals say, you know, they do the whole joke about like Bill Gates injecting you with the, the surveillance chip or whatever. But I mean, like Bill Gates is a very bad man. 
I mean, he's a man. Yeah, exactly. He's a man who was good friends with Jeffrey Epstein, and then when asked about it on a recent interview, just said, "Well, he's dead now, so it doesn't matter." I mean, he isn't. He's an unpleasant individual <laughs> with a, an absolutely terrible legacy on this planet. Who would almost certainly sterilize half of Africa if, <laughs> if given the well. chance? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and, you know, when it comes to things like vaccine passports as well, for example, um, you know, we've seen governments, especially our governments, post 9-11, for example, yeah. when they say that they're introducing emergency legislations, yeah. that they, uh, you know, keep them on for much longer. And we're, we're still uh, dealing with those things yeah. now, right now. Um, so the idea of governments actually holding on to these digitized records of especially of our medical history, which they can yeah. Uh, demand us to show them at any given point yeah. uh, that's a really terrifying prospect and you know at the moment the only people who are making any noise about it who you hear think, are the cranks and I think that these issues are far too important for us yeah. as the left to actually just let slide like that I think it's, it's important to stress that a lot of the smug liberals who like to you know make jokes about the horse paste and you know like the the Bill Gates surveillance chip or whatever they're greatly responsible for this legitimation crisis around you know governments and around your pharmaceutical companies uh, in the sense that they they themselves have shared a lot of conspiracy theories and disinformation especially around the whole uh, you know China lab leak thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like they, they bought into that, which was, you know, very heavily just pushed by like the CIA and, yeah, obviously. and you know, American inter military interests in general. And also when you go back to, you know, the start of the pandemic, how much of like the British media class bought into the, the herd immunity bullshit, which every single reputable scientist completely rejected. You know, there is no herd immunity solution to COVID, which doesn't result in just, I mean, like, literally like 20% of the population becoming either dying or becoming seriously ill. Yeah. And, you know, and they, they just completely breezed over that and just moved on to the next news cycle. So I think a lot of the, a lot of the smug media class are, are greatly complicit in this, yeah, this complete breakdown of legitimation and, and trust, which we are seeing, which is, which has created this, this kind of environment in which conspiracy theories thrive. Um, I, I, and I also think uh, because the left has been so thoroughly kind of pushed out of any media spaces, when people do have concerns about like uh, pharmaceutical companies or kind of a vague distrust of the media, there's no left uh, position that is visible to people. The the out the one outlet yeah, that quite, is uh, you yeah. know going across mainstream is the conspiracy stuff. Yeah, and I think it's a good point uh, that Rory makes not to, I suppose, feel like you just simply because there is a culture war that you need to take a side, mm. right? So yeah. you don't need to say, well, because uh, the intellectual dark web and. Uh, oppose and the anti-vaxxers oppose vaccine passports therefore I have to really vigorously promote vaccine passports because yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I quite agree with you Arjan they're just simply not a um, not a <laughs> great idea in my in my opinion either and I think they've actually the kind of uh, in, incredibly feckless way that the government has um, floated the idea I would say has really bolstered the anti-vax movement which should not have been bolstered in this country yeah um, so, you know, I think that's, it's certainly, yeah, one, you know, don't get tricked essentially into thinking, you know, um, because this is what the anti-vaxxers say, I have to, you know, just be, 
become the equal and opposite reaction. I think another um, point to remember is that uh, conspiracy theories thrive where where two pieces of information that are widely accepted to be true conflict with one another. And therefore, people need to create something to explain that that conflict. Mm-hmm. And so a really easy example might be, you know, just the government says one thing, you know, in the interests of saving lives, and yet they do something else, mm-hmm. which doesn't seem to match up with that. Yeah. And the truth is, you know, the, that, that is a real contradiction, yeah. uh, you know, and people aren't stupid or naive for noticing that. Yeah. In fact, they're just in possession of their critical faculties mm-hmm. and you know sure. so for instance you know the government saying uh you know um you can go and sit down in a restaurant but you can't go and sit in your mum's house or something like that uh, you know this sort of thing people pick up on that yeah or well, like the, the crucial equation at the heart of this is that you know pfizer don't care about people they care about making money everything is geared towards profit which is the, at the heart of all conspiracy theories but is undoubtedly true isn't it you can't you can't dispute yeah. that. that that's the the economic but, equation at the heart of all of it i guess yeah i guess the point i'm trying to make is that i have my own explanation for why the government say one thing and do another mm-hmm. but yep. it's a mistake that the left can often make to assume it's blindingly obvious that explanation and yep. you know you must be very you know very foolish or too far gone indeed if you don't notice it mm. it's not necessarily true people are just you know very often just trying to piece together the information they have to come up with a answer that sounds satisfying to them mm. and quite often this is where you know uh, anti-vax influencers will step in and say hey i've got a satisfying explanation for you um and so this will then kind of butt up against what Ashton says quite correctly that you know well that's all very well you have to come up with an explanation and tell them but how are you going to do that when you don't actually have any kind of media profile or media presence and that is I think you know probably actually the the stumbling block uh, that this solution comes up against but I do think it doesn't mean we shouldn't try you know we shouldn't we shouldn't always i think do this kind of slightly inward looking thing of you know of course we all know why the why the tories are you know saying you know saying one thing but doing another um i do think there needs to be more outreach in that regard yeah. i think uh, yeah don't um don't underestimate how little you know, free time normal people have to to research well, all yeah, this definitely. yeah i think definitely. i was speaking Someone... They can't listen to all of the yeah. all of the podcasts. That you... <laughs> I, it's just yeah. I remember about a year ago I was speaking to him. You know, I suppose she was an anti-vaxer, but I was just like walking the dog, and I this person I've sort of got to know over time. But she just um, yeah, she'd heard this this one sort of Facebook. You know, she read this one Facebook post. You know, she talked about it briefly with some people, and she just she didn't have the time to. To really get involved in the discourse, you can't. Um, yeah. You can't assume that the average person is a is a poster or a you know a media <laughs> consumer like yeah, like we are. It's uh, <laughs> never yeah never underestimate how little time people have and how how little exposure uh, they've had. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. It's not that you know the people who fall into this sort of thinking are stupider than average yeah, or you not. know. Uh, more naive or gullible or anything yeah um 
it's which is yeah you know something that always really bothers me when mm-hmm. i talk about it is how many people will kind of respond saying you know how stupid they are um but yeah they're just as you say they're working with the information that they have in the time frame that they have which as you say um often often isn't an awful lot so yeah i think it's yeah about kind of uh figuring out how we get that kind of how we get those explanations yeah definitely out there i suppose yeah, maybe we all just need to just move to Facebook. Yeah, but then and... Facebook will yeah. crash because it wouldn't be able to handle the bandwidth of all of us moving there. <laughs> 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 no, but just generally speaking, you know, um, it is probably a good thing, right, for there to be a general suspicion and scepticism towards authority and power. You wouldn't really want the general public to be subservient uh, to power all the time, right? And I think that you know, I know this is obviously anecdotal and this comes down to a lot of the conversations that I've had with just general people uh, about COVID uh, and about a lot of the hesitancy yeah. that they have in accepting the the given narrative. And, you know, people yeah. are constrained by the information that they have access to. In some cases, you know, they are um, driven by the lack of access to, let's say, healthcare, um, like in, in, a, in a place like India, for example. And... Um, the, the, so, uh, you know, ultimately, I think I'm quite optimistic when it comes to people and towards their general instinct for having, um, you know, mistrust towards authority. And like we've mentioned throughout the podcast as well, um, you know, these things are oftentimes very well grounded. You know, these things oftentimes do come down to uh, a longstanding history of abuses of power and of um, a continuing um lack of transparency when it comes to these kinds of issues right and um yeah the question is really how do we actually reach through to these people you know if is it possible for us to even maybe direct this kind of mistrust in a, think... in, a, in a productive or meaningful direction because obviously i mean in, in my eyes it's, it's maybe even quite fertile ground Yeah, I really agree. Yeah, these are very healthy impulses, scepticism of kind of uh, narratives of authority and, um, you know, kind of wondering, you know, questioning, you know, who benefits from, you know, what authority is telling you. These are all really good, you know, healthy impulses that I think are good. I often think what bothers me about conspiracy theories is the way they actually Mm. seem to corral people actually away from taking any kind of political action um and almost sort of seems to give them this kind of totalizing worldview in which in which in fact they are totally powerless do you know um yeah and you know you'll and and you know it doesn't it actually it seems to sort of point towards power towards the powerful and then almost pass them to this kind of faceless, unknowable yeah, sort pretty of Lovecraft, cabal right? in you QAnon terms. It, it's like yeah. this unknowable power which is beyond our yeah. comprehension, which we can't even perceive in real terms, <laughs> which we can never even know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, and it 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 often it, it's no mistake that I think it you know often borrows in fact the language of horror and uh, fantasy and science fiction and you know some of the QAnon posts i've read could you know well be from a, a lovecraft novel so it's kind of it, in a way it sort of seems to yeah 
it seems to yeah take this this healthy human skepticism to to not trust trust necessarily what milord is telling me yeah. and then actually says you know actually milord's not the problem it's his shadowy advisors you yeah. know <laughs> i think the the key thing about that is in a healthy functioning political system that's distrust and that's uh, cynicism would actually lead to political changes if we didn't live in a sort of totalizing market economy uh you know which the the media has been completely consolidated by corporate interests that you would be able to translate that you know that healthy mistrust of of the government into political action mm. but it's is the is the fact we're living you know beyond the we're living in a post political age we're living you know beyond the fukuyama you know end of history in which politics is not something that you can do it's not something you can you can even dream about we're just stuck in this in this you know final this final era of history and so all, that's all you really can do is just post about it <laughs> when you we're all we're all just we've all got our suspicions we've we all see like clear contradictions in society and all we can do is is post through it <laughs> that's, that's, very, that's very bleak i don't want to end on that that was, uh, that was incredibly jokeified. <laughs> I, I am pretty jokeified yeah <laughs> but yeah or it leads to a situation like the capitol hill insurgency uh in uh in january so it's sort of like one extreme or the other. And uh, when it is action that it causes, maybe it's not the kind of action that we want to see exactly. I suppose, yeah. I don't, I don't really, uh, yeah, I don't really think that whole, you know, the, the so-called Capitol Hill insurrection, I don't think it was of any real consequence at all. I think it was, I think it was just this like weird anarchic event where these boomers from Iowa just decided to converge on the capital. I don't think anyone really feared it. No one, you know, the establishment weren't quaking, you know, the... Uh... I mean, I think one thing that's like really crucial about that specific event and the specific conspiracy theory that led towards it, it's actually a very unusual feature of conspiracy theories, which is that they all truly, well, not all of them, but many of them truly, truly believed that the army and the you know security services and stuff were all secretly on their side and were yeah, about yeah. to join them <laughs> which is so it's it's, su it's such a, a strange facet of QAnon yeah. belief yeah. this kind of understanding that actually yeah yeah um although there is the deep state and that's very bad there's also the good guys who are fighting the deep state in the army and the trump administration yeah. area and you know <laughs> that that there's going to be this wonderful day of the storm the reckoning where yeah the deep state gets flushed out by the good guys and they really did believe <laughs> many of them that they were part of that that the you know you see you see videos and many of them are saying stuff like, yeah, the army's on their way. They thought they were doing like a Boston Tea Party thing, you know. Um, what, what, so it's kind of... What no systemic analysis does to a market. <laughs> I think like, it also like... It, it also just makes a lot of sense, especially when you consider that there's a lot of crossover between QAnon and like evangelicals and people who believe that there's yeah. like, you know, there's going to be this end day where, you know, the, the streets are cleansed and the good ones get to go to heaven. Mm. And it's, it's that and it's just like, it's movies, right? And the bad guys are sent to get yeah. yeah. Like, I, I, like, I think I posted about it at the time, but like with the January 6th, 
there was this uh, sense that like, oh, that we'll storm the Capitol and then like Trump will see us and then and then something will happen. It was almost like they thought it was going to be like a video game cutscene <laughs> where you like you break yeah. in and that it's like you uh, do you know. You yeah, all definitely. get together and the, the screen like kind of closes <laughs> in like it's going into a widescreen like cutscene mode and they're going to all form like Trump's going to say like, well done, you got it. And then they're all going to form like a big laser together that's going to blast through Nancy Pelosi mm-hmm. and she's going to have like a big hole in her stomach that glows, right? And it, because it's, it, there's, it's, it's a story, right? And that's part of what that's um like um Annie I'm sure is is someone who kind of works in this field um you'll be familiar that like a lot of what makes uh, conspiracies appealing is that there's stories and they're often saying to people like well actually there's all these complex systemic factors and there's no like one good guy and one bad guy and like that's not that doesn't appeal to people no it's boring I just don't care about it already (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> my favorite aspect of the the sort of fantastical nature of the uh, the so-called ha- capitol hill insurrection was they all just went back to their hotels afterwards like they all just kind of went back to their hotel rooms <laughs> and, uh, thinking you know like there was nothing nothing really there were no certainly no consequences of it i mean like what if they these people think that after or, or they uh, or their flights got cancelled, yeah, yeah. they, they got stuck at the airport. Do these people think that after like storming the Bastille, everyone just went back to their hotel rooms in Paris or whatever? Like how how is this playing out in their mind? I don't understand. I mean, I do think there is something interesting about the political demographics that have got brought into this new era of conspiracy theory. So, not simply QAnon, but also um the anti-vaxxers and anti-lockdown movement in the UK. One thing I really noticed when I was uh, at a few marches uh, here in the UK was how many of them got very angry and very like frustrated at just simple things like people staring at them and taking photos of them. And I sort of realized none of these people have been on a protest before and they don't actually really understand that that's actually just really common. You know, if you're on a picket mm. or a protest, people yeah. will, you know, they'll they'll stare at you. They'll try and read your sign, you know, because you are just a bit of an oddity, you know. And they were taking it really, really personally. And even, you know, some of the more pissed up ones of them were sort of starting to, you know, start fights about it and stuff like that. And I sort of thought, oh, yeah, there's just like yeah. this has just like politically mobilized a whole bunch of people who have never been politically mobilized before. And they're, they're sort of just learning all the little oddities of just going yeah. to a march that, you know, I guess I guess as, as yeah, yeah, as someone on the on the left, I just sort of gotten used to by the time I was about 17, do you know? Yeah, yeah maybe a bit similar to uh, Extinction Rebellion. Who knows? <laughs> I mean, uh, at least in terms of as a group. That's that, spicy. Uh, yeah, at least as a group that's uh, mobilized people who were maybe previously not as uh, engaged with politics. That's not a bad thing, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Also, in terms of how many cops are embedded in these movements, they definitely have something in common. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I think uh, ultimately when it comes to uh, you know, when conspiracies move from the realm of conspiracy to fact, and for me, the clearest example of this is phone tapping. Oh, JFK. And, uh, no, JFK is, 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 is phone tapping and, and surveillance. And, um, you know, um, uh, up yeah. until, you know, the like the late 
20, like the late 2000s, uh, it was somewhat of an open secret and everyone kind of knew that it was happening. And then the Snowden leaks happened and we all had documented information about, um, you know, the extent of this unwarranted, uh, you know, mass surveillance that was going on. And, um, you know, I think that ultimately people have this instinct, like I said, of, you know, mistrusting power, right? And And if you engage people at the level of, asking who gets to benefit from these conspiracy theories. I think that's, at least for me, that's something that seems to have broken through in some cases. Um, you know, because like, for example, um, you know, people who are convinced that the lockdown is in place, um, you know, so that let's say big delivery companies and logistics companies can make a lot of money. And sure, like they do. That's because we live in a in a, a, a society of disaster capitalism where you have these fat cats who are just basically waiting to pounce on crises to make as much money as they possibly can. But um Ultimately, uh, you know, when it comes to lockdowns, who's losing out from people not going to the offices? It's commercial landlords, right? And these landlords are oftentimes friends with the people in government who are making the laws. So, you know, when you actually get them to, to think about it in those terms, you know, I think people can maybe change their mind. And again, like I said, um, this is anecdotal and I've you know, this comes from conversations that I've had yeah. with various people. And, um, you know, especially when it comes to COVID and stuff, you know, by now, yeah. everyone has pretty much, um, yeah. you know, known someone who has been affected by it very severely, um, you know, at, at a pretty close level. Um, and so, you know, I think that people do, when they are presented with the full range of facts, um, they they do tend to sort of piece things together. And... I think that, that that engaging them on those terms might not be the worst thing in the world, you know. Yeah, it's the complete yeah, it's the complete absence of of political economy in the in the modern discourse. People people don't deal with, you know, movements and, you know, material material structures and things like that. It's just it's purely, you know, personalized and individualized grievances uh mainly mainly which are, you know, founded on yeah internet arguments stuff like that <laughs> i mean the when you when you think about like conspiracies in the in the covid era well why aren't these people looking at why why every newspaper every, every right-wing newspaper is so determined to send everyone back to the office yeah. i mean it's because well, their sales are down that's why yeah. it's because people aren't buying newspapers when they're at home I mean, like, little things like that there are conspiracies but it's not you know it's not about injecting you with microchips and stuff it's a lot more simple uh yeah simple things like that definitely and uh yeah i think on that note as well um i think we probably covered most of the points that we wanted to cover today so yeah i think we've pretty much put the world mm. to rights yeah i definitely. think we've solved coronavirus well done everyone we've solved it <laughs> yeah we've not only solved coronavirus but we've also uh, nationalized the entire global private pharmaceutical industry as well so i think that's not too bad you know, for a one and a half hours work so you're um, welcome everybody no <laughs> absolutely <laughs> no, but genuinely thank you so much both of you for coming on this has been very informative it's been a lot of fun yeah. um if you guys had any plugs or any shout outs or anything like that that you wanted to say any social medias you wanted to to shout out before we go? Yeah, maybe. I don't think so. I have a, a Twitter account. It's at uh, Ambient Gillian. A-M-B-I-E-N-T-G-I-L-L-I-A-N. 
Um, I am um, a little bit uh, quiet on there. I think I'm currently on private, so um, uh, you may may or may not um, be able to access that account. Um, I'm, I'm, in a, I'm in a quiet phase in my life right now. So I liked that. That was so mysterious. What's yeah, behind the curtain? Right. You might find out. <laughs> exactly. And um, yeah, if you'd like to hear me talk about more... Uh, British conspiracies and conspiracy theories, you can listen to me at QAnon Anonymous and you can also listen to me talk more about about all that stuff I was going on about earlier, about the history of scabs and pus and blowing stuff up your nose and all of that kind of thing, our Vaccine the Human Story, which is both on YouTube and podcast app. Yeah, I mean, uh, QAnon Anonymous comes highly recommended, very informative and very entertaining. And um, uh, yeah, as, as always, I'm Arjan I'm at Arjanistan on Twitter. And I'm Rory at Emma Kennedy on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we are at Leftover Pod on Patreon, uh, patreon.com forward slash Leftover Pod. Massive thanks to all of our supporters, as always. Um, if you are able to help as well and you've considered helping us before, please do. It really does help. Uh, we are trying to put out more content you know hopefully we can make this more sustainable moving forward so if you are able to help uh please do consider that it really does help um massive thanks to cardio for the music as always big thanks to all of you for listening huge love to sarah and uh, we'll catch you guys next time cheers we run this spot like a Chinese sweatshop. Don't stop. Work the work until chest pop. Cardiac arrest and I'm so invested. I'm self-invented. That's over illusion. There's no confusion. You see the future. You fear the future. I've seen the truth and I'm so deluded. I've been a better bad guy than I've been better than bad. Been a bit of bully talk beating in my chest and fat guy. Half stack from a rat. I've been a bottle of vodka but I know a few facts. Maniac, radiac, run, go tell him that. AT, Elliot, and my fun of rap. Hammer me, grow, go step. Show up in your class, what's happening? Two yard bullet with a fully automatic. Heart full of pain and a head full of heaven. Everybody step on the key and I'm letting them have it. Kevin, leave a name, mama, to say what happened. Who gon' buy my baby a cat? Up that bitch in the basket. Mega blast, I'm mega lit. On Highway 6 and I'm not strapped in. I don't crash, bitch, I just skid. Got the cash, I'll make the trip. I make the trip, you better pay. Young horse, finesse, don't make my day. I'm not from Earth, from far away. I bust through chests like baby grace. Running the jewels of the game. Whipping the mixes like chickens are cane. Spitting the sickness of game. Parents is living the game. Kids is just make off the same. Wanting that pistol, left this with a chain. Rapping the simple like they in the game. Delivery dope like a dose of your dope. Or a nose full of coke for a junkie of fiend. Got a promise I will never hang up with